So I, uh, I have in my hand uh, an Albert Pujols rookie card. Some of you are going, who's Albert Pujols and what is a rookie card? And for those of you that say that, uh, I wonder how much you'd be given to, how much you'd be willing to spend for this. My suspicion would be little to nothing, right? It has no value in your eyes. Others of you maybe know a little bit of something about pool holes. You might know what a rookie card is, and you say, I'll give you two, three bucks for it. But you wouldn't give $100, $200, $300, which is what it's actually worth. And here's the point of all of that. The point is, friends, you know how much you value something, not just by what you say you value it for. You know how much you value something based on what you're willing to spend to know it and to enjoy it. Many people claim to have faith in Christ, and yet what we find is that what, you, what we see is your faith is revealed and what you're willing to spend to know it, to enjoy it. And so the question for us this morning is simple. How much are you willing to spend in order to see and savor Christ? Let's be clear, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're going to see that in the passage this morning. But the truth of that confession is revealed by how much you treasure Christ and his kingdom above all else, so much so that you're willing to give it all up, to know him, to follow him, to be with him. We'll see that today as we study, continue our study in the gospel according to Luke. How much of your life, your comfort, are you willing to put on the table to reveal your treasure of Christ? Uh, or as Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. So for the rich man, we're going to see that he, he does. He, he values eternal life a bit. So, uh, you know, he's willing to sacrifice some, but not he doesn't treasure Christ in his kingdom enough to walk away from all of that. For the disciples, we'll see. They're willing to leave it all. For Jesus, we see that it's worthy of his life. And finally, for that blind beggar at the end, we will see he is willing to leave it all. He's willing to lose what little place he has left in the world in order that he might see and savor Christ. And so how much is Christ worth to you? His kingdom worth to you? Is it worthy of all or just a little bit? Well, let's take a look at these characters in the text there. Let's take a look at the rich ruler, sometimes called the rich young ruler. Uh, we find right off the bat, we see what value this man has for Jesus by the way that he refers to Jesus. He calls him a good teacher, a good teacher. That's what the rich ruler thinks he needs. He needs a good teacher. He needs a teacher, he needs a God, he needs a kind of life coach to kind of get him where he needs to go. And where is it he wants to go? Well, he wants eternal life. It's a good thing, right? I would hope that we would want that. What must I do, he says, to inherit eternal life? Critical question. And Jesus goes straight to the heart by redirecting the premise of the ruler's question. Redirecting the premise of the ruler's question. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we as Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and so is here, is Jesus denying his divinity? Well, certainly not. Jesus has made this abundantly clear, not only in his abilities to calm the wind, to raise the dead, most notably to forgive sin. We've seen that his divinity in that. But most notably, he, 
shows his, div his divinity in the way that he refers to himself as the Son of Man, a title that everyone would have known would have been of heaven. So no, Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's redirecting the ruler's assumption, namely that one can earn their way to heaven by being good, thus earning eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is helping us see you can't earn eternal life by doing something. God is only good. We cannot be good enough. And so Jesus kind of goes on and plays the game with the ruler here. He says, you know the Ten Commandments. Well, he says, you know the commandments. And then you'll notice that Jesus lists the back half of what's called the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the kind of love of neighbor passages. He kind of skips the first passages of loving God first because, again, Jesus is going after this guy's heart. He lists honor father, mother, adultery, murder, stealing, lying. And the ruler responds, yeah, I've done all of that since I was a wee little lad. In other passages, we learn that at this point, Jesus, it says, loved the man. I would have loved to have been here at this moment just to see Jesus' face when he said, yeah, I've done all of that. I can imagine Jesus kind of maybe doing something like closing his eyes, pursing his lips, going, or something along the lines of, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've obeyed them all. Jesus sees this guy as not getting the way of the kingdom. He's seeing the category for mercy, his need for mercy. And so Jesus continues to play the ruler's game by, of doing something to, eternal, to earn eternal life so as to expose the ruler's heart to himself. So he tells him, sell it all, give to the poor, come and follow me. And listen, you'll have treasure in heaven. He's trying to help him see what he actually treasures. And we find what Jesus is intending to do in his kind of Socratic method of sorts. It's really Jesus' method. It gets exposed because it says there, but when he, the real ruler, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. We find, friends, that the ruler's wealth owned him. He didn't own his wealth. His wealth owned him. When presented with the treasure of heaven or the treasure of earth, the ruler chose the treasures of earth over the treasures of heaven. And the reason why is because at the heart level, he valued his life here more than he valued his life there with Christ in heaven. Therefore, he was only willing to spend so much. He was willing to spend some, but only so much in order to gain his life in heaven. And here's where that question comes in from Jesus. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Well, apparently, according to the rich ruler, his answer would have been, it profits a lot to gain the whole world and lose my soul. Jesus and his kingdom was worth some good behavior, some sacrifice, but it wasn't worth giving up everything for. Jesus and a treasure in heaven wasn't worth that much to the ruler. Earthly treasures were more valuable to him. And therefore, the ruler's heart is exposed for treasuring favor with man and comfort in the earth over favor with Christ and comfort in heaven. Jesus, that is, exposes this man's hypocrisy and unbelief by helping him see what he actually valued the most. 
And then Jesus describes that, or supplies that uh, well-known description statement about wealth as the ruler walks away. Sort of a stat, sad moment, right? He's sad. Jesus is looking at him. Jesus maybe turns to his disciples and says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what comes next is interesting. The disciples sort of reflect even our modern day kind of understanding of prosperity gospel teachers. They think wealth is a sign of a favor from God. So they respond to Jesus' statement about wealth, and he says, well, the disciples say, well, who can be saved? If not them, if not the people that I thought God had blessed because they had so much money, so much influence, well, if they can't be saved, well, then who can? And Jesus responds with a critical statement. What is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, man can't save. Only God can save. So there are some today that teach us that Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught two different Gospels. Some people will say that Paul and Jesus understood justification in two different ways. Some people say that Jesus taught, this is what the Roman Catholic Church would teach, the Eastern Orthodox Church, similar to this. They would say that Jesus taught you need to have faith, yes, but you also need to do some works. And the combination of those two things lead to salvation. That's what some people say. And then they would say that Paul, he taught something different. That it was by grace through faith in Christ alone that one must be justified. And works come from that justification. They in no way earn it. And here, I think in, in this verse, we find that Jesus and Paul, in fact, do agree. Salvation, justification, being counted righteous, forgiven before God. It is impossible with man. There is nothing that we can do. No amount of works. No, no matter how many good things this ruler did, no matter how many things this rich ruler did, he was never, never, never going to do enough to be saved. And the reason why this is the case is supplied for us by Jesus himself. It's simple. The reason why that's the case is because only God is good. Only he is good. We can never clean ourselves up enough. Our hearts are stained by sin and no amount of works can scrub out that stain. It is only by the holy, sacrificial, and beautiful blood of Christ that makes it possible for that stain of sin to be removed. And that's what Jesus means when he says that salvation is impossible by man, but possible, praise the Lord, hallelujah, with God. God does the saving, not man. We need mercy from God. We don't need him to kind of pay us what we owe for our good works. God shows mercy and brings salvation, and it is in no way a work of man. Therefore, God can do the impossible and save sinners. And how is it he does that? Again, by the work of Christ. You're going to see that. Look what comes next. Verse 31, the atoning work of Christ. But let's come back to that ruler just for a moment again. The ruler thought that he could earn his way to heaven by obeying the law. An impossible task, according to Jesus. And Jesus loved this ruler. How? By exposing not only his bad theology, but he went beneath his theology, beneath his intellect, belief even his own confession, and he revealed the ruler's heart. 
Friends, we are more than what we say we believe. What we actually believe is revealed in what we treasure. And what we treasure is revealed in what we are willing to give up, to maintain, to see, and to enjoy that confession. The ruler simply didn't treasure the king and the kingdom as much as he treasured himself in a kind of kingdom of his own. He didn't have saving faith as evidenced by his ultimate allegiance to his own wealth and his own place in the world. And I think it's helpful for us to note as a church, this guy, this rich ruler, he probably would have been an elder candidate in a lot of churches. Isn't that interesting? He showed himself to be a good ruler, a good leader in the community. He's a ruler. Uh, He had some influence, had some money. He was a really moral guy. He was a devoted son to his parents. He never cheated on his wife. He didn't murder anyone. He was known for his honesty. He even saw Jesus as a good teacher. Jesus was certainly more than that, but he was not less than that. He, uh, this ruler saw Jesus as some kind of spiritual authority. How many churches would take this guy as an elder of their church? See, Jesus saw right through all of this by evaluating the ruler's theology but also in what he treasured so as to reveal that theology. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Right? (laughs) What a fitting illustration. What a fitting illustration. That on the surface level, This rich ruler, this sort of ruler of the earth, appeared to be, using our language, a Christian, to have faith. And yet he was unwilling to make the ultimate sacrifice of walking away from it all in order to have Jesus. He was willing to take some sacrifice, obey some commandments, but unwilling to do others. He was willing to kind of give, you know, I'll give you 1,000 bucks, Jesus. I'll give you kind of 2,000 bucks, Jesus. I'll kind of do some things, Jesus. But he didn't find treasure in heaven as being more value than treasure in the earth. And so he walks away. Exposing what he actually believed. Exposing what his faith was in. Friends, you cannot earn heaven. Look back up in verse 17. Jesus teaches there the kingdom of God must be received not earned. And the only way it can be received is when you perceive the value of the king and his kingdom and you are willing to lose it all in order to gain it, to trust it for life. And that's what comes next with these disciples. Looking down at what comes next, we see here in uh, verse, uh, what's that, 19? Actually, I'm on the wrong page. The wind has blown me off. Verse 28, we see what comes next. Peter realizing What the ruler did not do, Peter realizes the disciples, they actually have done that. They've done this. They've walked away from family, from friends, and those kinds of things. And they've done it not as a way of earning, like the rich man thought, but their leaving reveals their trusting, treasuring Christ above all. And so Peter reminds Jesus, hey, Jesus, hey, we've done that. We've walked away. They have believed Jesus to be of more value in their lives before Jesus showed up. They believe he's worth at all. And in verse 29, Jesus assures Peter and he assures us, he assures us that no one, circle those words, no one 
who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. You know, when I think about the life of our church, I think about our brother A.J. Wygan and Lucas. Y'all remember them, those few that were here so many years ago that left this church and went to go preach the gospel to the Tatar people of Russia. I think about the Maleros that left Venezuela, their home, their family, their friends, their church home. They left it all to come to this city, Washington, D.C., to try to reach the Hispanics of our city. I think about Andrew and Esther Sung that left here, that took their jobs and went to Singapore to preach the gospel. I think about the Rich and Rachel Ernst, how they figured out a way to go to an Asian country to work with Wycliffe Bible translators. I think about our sister Savannah Miller that's actually doing this right now. She's in the process of working this out to leave here to go to another country to preach the gospel. Uh, I think about our campus campus outreach workers, Lexi and Owen and Sarah and Matt and the others. It would have been much easier for them to stay back home, but instead they figured out a way to raise money to stay in a very expensive city to reach people, most of whom at this campus just don't have access to the gospel. And I think about other members of our own churches, what we might call regular people, that instead of going back home, they chose to make this their home and said through the ministry of this church, I'm going to give my life to this community, to the church. I could list a number of you. I'm looking over there at David Attaway that's been here from the beginning. So this is going to be my mission field. It would be much easier to go back home, but I'm going to stay here. And what Jesus is telling us is that these people will know something. More now and forever because of that choice. How could we forget the Copuses, right, who picked up their lives to raise a family in a Muslim Middle Eastern country because of their allegiance to the kingdom? Guys, the world does this all the time. You all, probably most of you, with the exception of maybe Cal and Ellie, Cal and, uh, Cal and Ellie, probably all the rest of you, you're not from here. You probably moved here for some big dream. You wanted to accomplish something. Right? Some people, this, the world does this all the time. They, they move, we move, right, with great difficulty to ourselves in order to accomplish some great vision you have out in front of you. Some people move from city to city, to uh, chase money. Others move to, from city to city to chase the dream of a house, to be closer to family, which of course is a good thing. Others of you move because the government tells you to and you don't have much of a choice. <laughs> Still others move because they want, they have this dream of more influence for themselves. The point is, friends, inconveniencing yourself is something that people do all the time for the sake of some future vision of a better life. That's normal. That's common in our world. And that's because God put it inside of the heart of man to do that. The question is, what about us as the church? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for our own dreams and visions? Are we willing all the more to do that for Christ and his kingdom? Willing to put ourselves in the fray, to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, 
because of our allegiance to Christ, because we see him as being more valuable than everything else, and we are but a breath here in this time. The disciples, AJ, the Moleros, the Songs, the Copuses, they moved because of a far better dream of seeing people come to know and enjoy Christ together. They were willing to lose something in order to gain something in Christ. We are often willing to inconvenience ourselves for things here. Will we inconvenience ourselves, bring ourselves into discomfortable places for the purposes of our allegiance to Christ, both relationally or otherwise? Jim Elliott said that he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott could say things like that. Of course, many of you know he died in the face of the Aka Indians of whom he was trying to reach for the gospel. And Jesus says that Jim Elliott and these others, they gained something in the now, but he gained even more, an eternal reward. Too often, people apart from Christ, friends, are not compelled by the gospel because we've domesticated the gospel. We make Jesus appear to be little more than a coonerbit, flare in our backpack, a bumper sticker, a tribe, a friend group, little more than an allegiance that's no different than maybe liking a sports team. They're not compelled by our gospel. And so we shouldn't be surprised when those people apart from Christ are not compelled as a result of our not choosing to enter into those uncomfortable places for the purpose of helping them see the value of Christ. We haven't shown them the value of Christ in our decision making and our sacrificial, sacrificial decisions. Our lives look so similar to those around us because we're so busy trying to be like this rich ruler sometimes. Trying to carve out a place where we can kind of Live in both worlds. Trying to figure out a way to get eternal life, but not in a such a way that it burdens us too much. And yet we do burden ourselves in other things. Beloved, we teach the treasure of Christ and we show people the treasure of Christ when we are willing to make our lives uncomfortable because we understand that which is of eternal value. Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And listen, you don't have to leave home to do that. You don't have to move to do that. You don't have to leave house or family. But are you willing to at least put that on the table? And some of you are saying, Nathan, you know what? Now that you sit here and talk about this, I'm not real sure. I can feel that. Well, look here. Jesus gives us two motivations. To die to the American dream and live for the kingdom of God. The first thing that we learn from this, that we can learn about the way that Jesus motivates those difficult decisions, the first thing that we learn from it is how he uses a future reward to motivate present obedience. Did you catch that? Jesus motivates costly obedience with the hope of a heavenly reward, future reward. So that's my question to you guys. Are you regularly reading, praying, thinking, singing, about the hope of eternal glory with Christ in heaven. Is that something you give your time to, thought life to? Well, I think what Jesus is teaching us here is if you don't, then don't expect to make costly decisions for the kingdom. But if you are thinking about those things, 
then the prospect of more treasure in heaven will spur you on to enter into suffering, difficulty, inconvenience, if it means you have more of Jesus when this age is over. Time and time and time again, the Bible motivates costly commitments to follow Christ with a future reward in heaven. And so, beloved, do the hard work of hoping in heaven, learning how to see it, savor it, so that you can make decisions in the now that will reveal to your neighbor and to the nations that Christ is of infinite worth. The second thing, though, Jesus uses to motivate costly commitments in the, in the, uh, in the cost of following him now is how he, showing us how he went before us and did it himself. He shows us that he is an example to his own counsel. Guys, that's why Luke puts what he does next in verse 31. These, these stories are not just randomly thrown together. He sticks this next to it because he wants you to see that what Jesus calls us to, he himself has done. Along with the disciples, Jesus is the exact opposite of the rich ruler who wanted to only go part of the way in realizing the treasure of heaven. Remember, as he says there in the passage, he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was born for this day that he's going to meet. All of human history is centered around this day. He says that the prophets have written about this day in the scriptures. By the way, yet another example of how Jesus was allegiance to the Bible. Jesus goes to Jerusalem in order to expose the eternal value of the kingdom of God. To expose that it is worth far more than the kingdom of man. He shows us, I love this, that's a promise, underline that, that the kingdom will be accomplished. He knows he's about to suffer, but he knows he's going to win. Jesus knows that he will suffer and he knows that, that he will win because he knows the value of the kingdom of God. He knows the strength of the kingdom of God and so he goes to Jerusalem. Beloved, the eternal worth of Christ and his kingdom. Listen, the eternal worth of Christ and his kingdom is seen in the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, willingly being delivered to the Gentiles and consequently being mocked shamefully treated, spit upon, flocked, and murdered on a criminal's cross. That, friends, is how much Christ and his kingdom is worth. They are worth shameful treatment of the highest order in the earth in order to gain the treasure of heaven for all who would believe on him as the disciples do. Isn't this what Hebrews teaches us? For the joy set where? Before him, he endured the cross. Jesus shows us the value of heaven by being willing to take on the worst of the earth if it means he can realize treasure for his people with him in heaven. Jesus is the epitome of what he counsels in verse 29 of leaving house and home since he left his throne in heaven to take on the form of a man and be rejected so that people might have life with him. And so when Jesus commends to the disciples what he commends to the disciples, what he commends to us, he himself has done. There's nothing that Jesus calls us to, beloved, that he has not done first. And because he has, because of his atoning blood, which paid the cost for our sins, he raised from the dead, revealing that in fact Christ is, and his kingdom are not only more powerful than the kingdom of Ham, they show the Glory, the beauty of the kingdom of God. Because we see that everything on earth fades, doesn't it? It spoils, it dies. 
except those that are of Christ, in Christ, for Christ, we see that it goes on forever. And so Jesus not only motivates present-day costly obedience with a heavenly reward, he also motivates us by his own example. And thirdly, because of this gospel, his spirit, listen, his spirit can now empower us to do as he did. We can't do this work, this costly decision-making of walking into suffering for the sake of the... We can't do it on our own. We're too weak. But because of the gospel, the Spirit is able to dwell inside of the, uh, of the life of those that believe upon Him, and we can be empowered to make these costly decisions, to see and savor Christ out in front of us, to treasure heaven more than the comforts of the earth. And so we look back at the suffering of Christ and what He accomplished. We then look forward to our heavenly reward the sight of Christ, and we are then willing then to leave house, home, family, comfort for the sake of the kingdom. Beloved, be willing to be uncomfortable to expose the eternal worth of Christ in his kingdom. The hope of the, this gospel, though, apparently was hidden, isn't that interesting, to the sight of the disciples. I believe this is getting us ready for Acts chapter 2. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. That's volume 2. It's getting us ready for that moment when the Spirit descends upon them and then they have eyes to see exactly what he's talking about. But in this moment, it's hidden from their sight. And yet, ironically, it's not hidden from a blind beggar in some capacity. So just as the Pharisee and the tax collector were used by Jesus to exemplify two different faiths. Y'all remember that last week? The tax collector and the Pharisee, that kind of juxtaposition. Well, here... Luke is using uh, that rich ruler and he's setting it in juxtaposition to the blind beggar, the disciples, and Jesus to show the worth of Christ. And so as Jesus and the disciples get closer to Jerusalem, they come to this ancient city of Jericho. Those of you familiar with the story of the Bible, remember Jericho, this is the first city they come in, walls come tumbling down, kids, y'all probably sang that song. Jesus is coming in, he's getting real close now to Jerusalem. We're going to get into the passion narrative. We're going to kind of start to get in there next week, really starting to move into it the week after. Jesus comes into there, and the crowds begin to crowd him as he gets closer to Jerusalem. And as the crowds begin to surround him, seated behind those crowds is a blind beggar. He cannot see with his eyes, but he can hear with his ears. Something's going on. And so he asks, like, what's going on? What's going on? He can't see. What's going on? And someone in the crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth, he's coming by. You can imagine almost like a, I'm imagining when I was at the, the Nats sort of uh, World Series, there's so much you can't see. So you ah, what's going on out there? Jesus of Nazareth, he's passing by. Now notice again, the rich ruler identifies Jesus as a good teacher. The crowds identify Jesus as Jesus, that guy from Nazareth. But look at how the blind beggar sees Jesus. As soon as the hears, as soon as he hears about Jesus being coming by, he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Son of David. See, the blind beggar, the rich ruler, saw him as a good teacher. The crowd see him as Jesus, this interesting guy from Nazareth. But the blind beggar sees Jesus for who he is. The son of David. Son of David. The beggar understands that Jesus is none other than the answer to God's promise to Israel's greatest king. The blind beggar doesn't see him as a mere teacher, as a mere healer, as a mere prophet. The blind beggar believes that Jesus is the forever king come to bring about his eternal kingdom. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Does this sound familiar? Remember to the tax collector last week? 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Remember last week the tax collector said, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's blind beggar asking for the same thing. Remember, the, the Pharisee, he pleads all of his work. Remember that from last week? The rich ruler does the same thing. What do I got to do? Here's some stuff I've done. Neither of them had righteousness. Neither of them had salvation. The tax collector and the blind beggar, knowing only that God can save, instead, they don't plead themselves, they plead the mercy of Christ. The undeserved favor from God himself. Imagine the scene of this moment. Crowds shuffling. Jesus sifting through, getting closer to Jerusalem. The noise <sighs> amplifying. And there behind the crowds, people I'm sure have walked by this man a thousand times, never noticing him, a blind beggar screams out for the mercy for the son of David. And what comes next, take a look at verse 39, is yet again the illustration of the supreme worth of the treasure of heaven over the earth. You see it in verse 39? Most people just skip right over that verse. And I think it's critical to see. As the blind beggar pleads for the mercy of Christ, the son of David, look what the crowds do. They rebuke him. Telling him to be silent. Shh, 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 shut up. Shh, shh, shh. When seen inside of the larger context of this passage, friends, we understand verse 39 to be a picture of the prophecy that Christ told us. That this world will not have no time for such calls. They will shout down. They will call us to be silent. Beloved, if you speak up for Christ, if you cry out for mercy from Jesus, the son of David, if you seek to sell it all to the poor, leave house, family, if you seek to live for the eternal worth of Christ and the treasure of heaven, listen, you will be rebuked. You will be told to be silent because you, we don't value the same things that they do. You live according to a different set of rules. Your treasure is different. Listen, your citizenship is different. There's no way like the rich ruler of trying to carve out some middle position to fit in here and yet still get in there. It's one or the other. There is no in-between. The call of Christ is total. Blessed, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as those who see the value of Christ over our own sin, what do we do? We call out for mercy for Jesus. And when we are told to silent, shut up, we say, all the more, no mercy. And so, beloved, our position on sexuality, on gender, on salvation, on the Bible, on the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of the church, we should not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon us as though something strange were happening. We see it here. We see it from Christ. We should expect it. It's normal. Doesn't mean it's not hard. And look what happens. What is the blind beggar? How does he respond to their calls to be silent, to, to the, their rebukes to be silent? How does he respond? Verse 39. In response to the crowd's call for silence, I love this, the blind beggar cried out all the more. <laughs> all the more. No, 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 no. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears this, right? Here's a guy, here's a guy that he doesn't care about the rebukes of the world. He just wants, he treasures the mercy of Christ more than acceptance by the world. And I love this moment. Jesus walking by, people calling his name, wanting to touch him and the like. And Jesus, he hears this call. And he stops. 
he knows this is different. People call him teacher, maybe prophet, all the time. But he heard the voice of someone that called him by his true name. Son of David. And he stops. Jesus knew his eternal worth as the son of David. He knew that. Few others did. Therefore, when he heard this call, it stopped him in his tracks and it led him to meet this man who called him by his true name. Verse 41, look at it. What do you want me to do for you? I love this. Crowd screaming. Everybody wanting him to stop. He doesn't stop, but this guy makes him stop and he comes over. And in my mind, the picture of Jesus' face is so tender. He's encouraged by the faith of this blind man. Blind man can't see. What do you want me to do for you? And yet another contrast with the rich ruler. Did you catch that? Remember the ruler asked Jesus what he could do for God. Here the beggar, knowing he needed mercy, asked what Jesus can do for him. Here's the moment. What do you want me to do for you? Now, you might be surprised by the request of the beggar. I was at first glance. What do you want me to do? His response is, Lord, let me recover my sight. Why this request? Why not ask for eternal life like the rich ruler did? Because the beggar knew that the treasure of the kingdom of God was not merely eternal life, but it was in beholding the one that purchased eternal life. He wanted to see the king. The blind beggar wanted more than anything else to see and savor Jesus, the son of David. That's saving faith. Isn't that what we all want? Not just to get to heaven, but to see Jesus with our eyes. To savor him, to look at him in his face, the author and perfecter of our savior. Isn't that what we want? Just to, I just want to see him. More than anything else, I just want to see him of whom my soul loves, who gave his life for me, who gave, showed me mercy for my sin. Don't you want to see him? And Jesus, I think, this is just me, I think Jesus had a sweet smile, maybe even a tear in his eye, and said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Your faith, not your works, your faith made you well. Saved by believing, not by doing. Saved by mercy, not by works. Saved by faith in Christ. The rich man saw Jesus as a good teacher. The rich man saw Jesus as a good teacher. The blind, uh, poor beggar saw Jesus as the son of David. The rich man wanted eternal life. The poor man wanted Jesus. The rich man tried to earn his way to heaven. The poor beggar knew he needed mercy in order to get to heaven. The rich man emphasized what he must do to, eter- to inherit eternal life. The poor man, on the other hand, knew Jesus must do something for him, show him mercy if he was going to get eternal life. So what about you, friend? 
What about you? How much is Jesus worth to you? The reality is he is of eternal value. That much is certain. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. He created the world. There is nothing and no one more valuable than the eternally glorious Christ. He is of utmost value. He is the diamond, and we are the prongs holding him up. The question is, do you see the treasure of Christ as is evidenced by his work on the cross and in the resurrection and what he promises to those that trust him? Do you see the treasure of Christ and the treasure of heaven such that you're willing to lose it all to gain him? Or do you want just a little bit of Jesus? Just enough to get you in. Friend, that's a bad trade. Plead the mercy of Christ, not your works. Treasure heaven more than the fleeting treasures of earth. Be willing to lose it all as the disciples did, as Jesus did, as a blind beggar did. And trust the gospel in order that you may finally see and savor Christ with spiritual eyes and one day with physical eyes. And when you do, beloved, when we who are in Christ see Jesus as the blind beggar did, we will say without a moment's hesitation that it was worth it all. We want to see you, Jesus. How long must we wait here? Show us mercy. And give us eyes to see the eternally glorious Christ and make us willing to lose it all that we might gain him. May we give the whole of our lives for him and may we be willing to make uncomfortable decisions so as to expose the true value of you, Jesus. Forgive us where we haven't and thank you for mercy. There's more mercy in you than there is sin in us. God, we pray for those that are maybe weighing this out that are in that position of the rich ruler. Aren't we, God, in this ward three, aren't we more like that rich ruler? Oh, God, make those people, make us, make me able to see the wealth of Christ so that we might come and follow him and have treasure in heaven. We ask this in your name and for your glory.